There are 8 million stories in the Naked City. Some are true, some are made up, and some fall in between. That's the case with Adam Langer's new book, Ellington Boulevard. The novel revolves around the sale of a nothing special two-bedroom apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side, apartment 2B at 64 West 106th Street, also known as Ellington Boulevard. It's a tale about gentrification, relationships, theater, and most importantly to the author, it's a story about home. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, my interview with author Adam Langer. Adam Langer. Welcome to Cityscape. Ah, Great to be here. The book is loosely based on your own life, isn't it? Well, it started from a very, very small incident that happened to me, and I extrapolated from it. One night I came home. I thought no one was going to be in my apartment. I don't think any of us really think there's going to be anybody in our apartment. But I walked home one night uh, with my dog, and I found some people in there. And the people turned out to be a real estate broker and two buyers. And it turned out my apartment was for sale. And from there, I decided that would be an interesting way to begin a story. A guy comes home, finds some strangers in an apartment, has to move. When did this happen to you? About two and a half years ago. The book's really a lot about the search for home and how do you find a home and what does home mean to people. And this person, the character is a clarinet player who's been living in a very cheap apartment in New York, which very few of us are able to do anymore. And he's suddenly put right smack dab in the middle of the real estate boom that was happening, oh, about two and a half years ago. His name is Ike Morphy. He was away in Chicago visiting his dying mother. He gets back to New York. But when he got back to New York, Adam, things couldn't be better for him because he found a parking space. I, people are obsessed about this parking space. You can park in my neighborhood. I that's Maybe that's why my neighborhood isn't completely gentrified yet. Maybe that's the sign. Maybe in a couple of years you won't be able to find parking. I can go around and around. It usually takes me 5, 10, bad night, 20 minutes. Okay. And in a really bad scenario, I have to move the car by 7 a.m., but you can find parking in my neighborhood. Well, something else happened to Ike when he returned to New York City. He went to walk his dog named Herbie Mann in mm-hmm. Central Park. Things weren't the same. No, no, and that's what happens all the time with my dog. I I have a dog that I walk every day, and there's certain places he likes to go in the city. He likes Central Park during the daytime and the nighttime. He likes Riverside Park in the afternoons, and there are places that he likes to play. And now, because the neighborhood's getting so gentrified up there, they're doing beautiful work with the park. They're doing great stuff with the park, but there's no place for the dog to walk anymore. Everything's fenced. This over here is a children's garden where dogs aren't allowed. This part, they're reseeding for the summer, and so I can just take him along this little bridle path, and that's about the only place he can go. And the dog in the novel, like my dog, uh, has some objections to that. Ike took matters into his own hands when he went to the park. A lot of people used to take matters into their own hands with regard to the hill up there, and people would have, you know, bolt cutters, things, and just kind of push open the fence. And it almost became a game with the uh, park authorities. They'd, you know, they'd close it down. People would open it back up. So uh, a lot of people looked at my novel and saw this opening scene where a man just kind of rips open the fence as this, God, this is a really kind of against-the-law kind of character. But that a lot of people were doing that. I never did it, but... My dogs and I certainly took advantage of the people who had done that. I'm sure. Another sign that the neighborhood changed was the fact that Ike didn't know the police officers by name anymore and had an altercation with one. That's right. The neighborhood is changing up there. The neighborhood is known as Manhattan Valley. It goes from 96th to 110th Street from Central Park on one side to about 
Broadway on the other side. And the thing about the novel is I wanted to write a novel in the present tense. I wanted to write about things that were happening as I was writing. And the problem was, as I tried to write it, everything kept changing. Businesses kept moving out. People were moving out. People were moving in. Places that used to be HDFC zoned were now turning into condos. People were being forced out. And to just try and focus on this one neighborhood in particular moment of time became a really sort of difficult process because how do you capture this moment that's constantly changing? And in New York, this happens like 10 times faster than anywhere else. I come from Chicago, and my first two novels, Crossing California and The Washington Story, were set they were first set in Chicago and they moved out a little bit from there. But Chicago's a really fixed place. And in my old neighborhood where my mom lives in West Rogers Park and where they've my mom's had a house for 47 years, the neighbors are the same neighbors, a lot of them, since I was two years old. And the rabbi, yes, the rabbi next door moved out and now his son is there. So that's a change. But this is a really, you can kind of fix it in time, whereas New York is just the, the pace of it and trying to grab hold of it is really challenging. When your character Ike gets back to his building at West 106th Street, known as Ellington Boulevard, the entire building is different. None of his neighbors are there. This is a fictional building based loosely on my building. I put it at a fake address around two doors down from where I live. But there are a lot of longtime neighbors there. But during this real estate boom where people were getting five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for a place they'd spent less than a hundred thousand dollars for ten years earlier. People were really trying to get, take advantage of it. People were just trying to swoop down on this neighborhood. This looked like the last affordable place in all of Manhattan, particularly because it's close to Central Park. And just people were just swooping down. You'd, I, there would be open houses in the building. I would constantly get notes from, you know, the Corcoran Group, the Halsted Realty. Are you thinking of moving? Are you thinking of going out? Um, I could get this much for you. And I had really just moved in a few years ago. I wasn't ready to move out. But circumstances changed all that. Your character, Ike, had a deal with the owner of the building, a handshake deal with the owner. Handshake deals don't always work out so well <laughs> in the end, particularly when hundreds of thousands of dollars are at stake. And, yeah, he had a handshake deal, but um, the guy he had a handshake deal with died, and his son doesn't really believe in handshake deals anymore, particularly when he's got a business to start. And the thing is, when I first started writing this book, I really saw it as a good guy's bad guy story, gentrifiers, gentrified, people should be allowed to stay where they live. But it's not really interesting to write a book that way. I didn't want to write a polemic. I mean, because things change, people change, and, you know, people move with the times. And I thought, you know, it would be much more interesting to try and see the novel from everybody's point of view, not just the tenant and the dog who are being kicked out, though my sympathies are really with any, if anyone, they're with the dog. But to see it from, okay, let's see it from the standpoint, not of just the gentrified, but the gentrifier. See it from the landlord's point of view. See it from the real estate broker's point of view. See it from everybody's point of view, because no one really goes into this business necessarily thinking they're a bad guy. They have, they have a point of view. And in order to write the novel, I had to see that point of view. And in the case of writing about a real estate broker, that meant I had to go to real estate school and get, almost get a license in order to see his point of view. That meant from this, trying to see it from the mortgage broker's point of view, going to interview lots and lots of mortgage brokers and seeing how they went about their days and seeing what they saw their job as. So at the end... 
what I wanted to have was this novel about this very small thing, one little piece of real estate for sale, Upper West Side of New York, Manhattan Valley, but to see how many different lives are affected by it, how many different lives change through the course of this sale. What did you learn about the real estate industry in New York by doing all of that that you didn't know before? I mean, I had very cliched ideas of real estate brokers, sleazy, Glengarry, Glen Ross, Wall Street. Um, everybody's in it for themselves. Everybody's out to make a buck. Everybody's out to screw you over. But, you know, when I went to the school, I didn't – I saw the humanity of it, and I saw people trying to make a living just like they were in any other walk of life. And the one thing I didn't realize was I thought this was a really easy way to make a buck and that I didn't have a lot of respect for it. At the same time, though – there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in class, and the competition is so great, and lots of people aren't making much money at all doing it. And there's some people who are really skillful at it. And the character I have, whose name is Josh Dibnick, who becomes a really great real estate broker, is also an actor as well. And one of the things I learned was how much affinity there was between being excellent in theater and being excellent in real estate. I really saw those as kind of divorced from each other. You know, you're either great at this kind of real estate sales business or you're an artist. But his character is able to find the artistry in real estate, the artistry in sales. And that's something I didn't know about before. He plays the role of real estate agent. Right. Maybe there's a cognitive dissonance going on. At first, he says, okay, this is a role. I understand this role. I've played real estate brokers before. And now let me just play it to the hilt. Let me just treat it as a character, treat it like I'm playing Tartuffe or Candide or somebody else. And he grows to, you know, he's, he's a great method actor. He ultimately never leaves his part. He also uses two names. He's Josh as an actor and Joshua as the real estate agent. Yeah, that's how he sees himself. But at the end, he transforms from one into the other. At uh, the beginning, he, like I, sees it as this kind of dichotomy. Here is my sales side, here's my artistic side. But at the end, they fuse, and he becomes one name, one person. You also have a theater background yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. I've uh, spent a lot of time in the trenches of uh, off, off, off loop Chicago theater as a playwright, a theater critic, a theater producer. I had a theater company for a while. And, yeah, a lot of Josh's experiences are drawn on mine. A lot of what the novel is about is people having this vision of New York, mostly artists having this vision of New York, writers, editors, actors, and then coming to New York and finding it's a much different place, and they have to kind of change who they are or change their vision of it. And seven and a half years ago when I moved to New York from Chicago, theater was going to be my thing. I was going to write plays. I was going to produce them here just like I did in Chicago. I haven't written a play since. I just moved on to prose. So I, too, have trans was transformed by the city. As everything is playing out in the book, there are two characters who are writing a musical based on everything that is happening to all of these characters. Yeah. My first two books, Crossing California and The Washington Story, I really saw them play out in my mind as films. I saw them as movies. I saw blackouts, intercutting, all these filmic sort of techniques and elements. When I was writing Ellington Boulevard, I really saw it as a musical. I'm not sure why that's how I envisioned it. Maybe it's because of the visions I have in New York, a lot of which are from musicals, like Company comes to mind or plays like Light Up the Sky by Moss Hart. And I really had this vision of musical, fast-paced, rhythm, jazz, uh, arias, show tunes playing in and out of it. And at a certain point, it became natural for two characters to actually be writing it as a musical. And so I 
wanted after a while to see what this musical was, what it sounded like, and I wound up just writing a whole bunch of songs trying to envision both this book, which is a very musical rhythmic book, but also trying to visualize the musical that could be made out of it. And one of the things that interested me about a musical is that for me, New York is a place about a place where you create your own character or you can create your own character. You can reinvent yourself. And that's a very theatrical idea, which is why the musical made a lot of sense. We know of books on CD. Your book actually comes with a CD with the songs that you're talking about. Well, you got a CD. The public doesn't get a CD, unfortunately. They're available on my website, www.adamlanger.com. And I found a couple of really talented musicians who could put my words to music because, as I said, I was trying to see everything from every character's point of view, trying to see it from a dog's point of view, trying to see it from a real estate broker's point of view. And if I was trying to see it from the point of view of someone who's writing a musical, I really had to know what a musical was going to sound like. And I write a little bit of music at home, but I'm hardly a professional at it. I play a lot of instruments badly. But song lyrics is something I've always enjoyed experimenting with. So I called up two friends of mine, a guy named David Friedman, who's done a lot of Broadway work, a lot of work for Disney, has worked with everyone from Barry Manilow to Kathy Lee Gifford. And he put one of my songs to music. And another really talented guy, Jeff Loden, who's done a lot of off-Broadway work as well and a lot of commercial work. And he took two of my lyrics and put them to music as well. And so now I have a better sense of what the musical in the book would sound like. One of the songs refers to the city's real estate boom. Bing Bang Boom, it's called. So what's the real estate market been like? How are prices? Well, let me tell you. First they went splat, then they went bing, then they went boom. The market seemed flat, then it went swing. Now watch it go zoom. If you have an interest in no interest, no need to forage for a mortgage. First you go bang, then you go bang, then you go boom. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Our guest this morning is Adam Langer. He's the author of a new book called Ellington Boulevard. Adam, tell us about some of the other songs you wrote for this book. There's a song about the mortgage broker, which is a lament about what will her life be like, you know, when the real estate boom is over, i.e., what will her life be like now? And the other song is a song uh, which is a lament of a literary critic. There's a magazine in the book that's failing, and there's a literary critic, and the literary critic is completely sick to death of books. And so I put one of her songs to music as well. The buyer in the book, Rebecca Sugarman, works for that magazine that you're talking about. It's a fictional magazine called The American Standard. Yes, The American Standard, name chosen because everything's going down the toilet. I've spent a lot of time in magazines and journalism, and a lot of the struggles she faces are the ones that I faced as an editor, as a writer. How do you contend with dwindling page counts? How do you deal with advertisers who want to have certain sorts of things in the magazine? How do you deal with the fact that people aren't reading that much anymore? How do you deal with the fact that people want shorter and shorter uh, content? And her struggle, she's the one who is one of the people who's uh, buying the apartment. Her struggles fit in, too, and it fits into a larger issue, 
of how is New York changing? How is the literary scene changing? How is the theatrical world changing? How is this being affected by real estate where everything is becoming completely unaffordable? And just like the writers don't have no longer spa- any space in the magazine, where's the space for the artists in New York? There is an editor at this magazine, The American Standard, who has a very interesting way of determining whether a book was worth her attention. She would turn to page 67, and if the third paragraph didn't move her, it was out the window. That's a very exaggerated version of the struggle. Obviously, she's a ridiculous character in a lot of ways. I really, really like her. I think she's really funny. But at the same time, there is a struggle that literary critics in this country have, which is they usually have maybe a page or a page and a half to like take care of all of the world of literature for a month or a month and a half. And there are piles and piles of books coming to her desk. There are 200, 300, and 400 books that are coming every week, every week and a half, and she has room to review three of them. So how do you read 400 books in a week? And her method is called page 67, paragraph 3. She looks at page 67, paragraph 3, and uh, that's her way of dealing with it. Was it coincidental? I'm opening your book right now to page 67. There is no paragraph 3. There yeah, is I didn't only want to one. be judged on it. I didn't <laughs> want her to judge my book. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that the seller, Mark Masler is his name, the man who owns this building trying to sell the apartments. He wants to sell because he has a business venture that he wants to take care of. And that is a combination car wash restaurant. Yeah, it's an idea whose time has come. It's called Rolls. Rolls, uh, restaurant and wash. So you go, I mean, you got a high dollar car, you got a Hummer, you want to bring it in, and what are you going to do for two hours while it's being detailed? You got to take advantage of that time. And he's a chef and he's into cars. So it's an idea that makes perfect sense for him. His idea, though, had a fatal flaw that he finds out about later. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a problem. Well, I don't know if I want to spoil the ending, but yeah, it's uh, kind of tough to get a liquor license if you're running a car wash in the city. Yeah, it certainly is. His third wife, though, Allison, had her own idea called convertibles. Yeah, he meets this woman who's um, a young woman who's a lot more on the ball than he is in every possible way imaginable. And she's, um, you know, Mark would like to think of himself maybe a liberal, maybe a little to the right. She is out and out liberal, lib- libertarian, likes Condoleezza rights, likes Maggie Thatcher, both women who she says knew what they want and went for it. And her idea, let's get some more money in. Heck with the uh, uh, restaurant car wash. Let's make it a topless bar called Convertibles, and it's a place where everybody pulls down their tops. Allison also has a brother named Caleb who lives in Riverdale. He's a troubled teenager, and people think that he's going to go over the edge like the kids in Columbine did. Yeah, there are a lot of characters I occasionally write because I get really tired of certain descriptions of disaffected characters. I've read a lot of novels where we have lots of disaffected youth pulling out guns, shooting up a lot of people. Obviously, this is an incredible problem, but it's very, very isolated to a few individuals. And I kind of wanted to play with the cliché of this individual who you think is that sort of person, but is really something else entirely and really has a lot more intellectual going on than you would imagine. And his brooding characters who listens to um, damage manual music is not necessarily a violent guy because, I mean, I know a lot of these kids. I mean, I've 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 taught sometimes in high schools, and these aren't necessarily violent people with loads of guns lying around. It's not that different from when I was a kid. And like some of my best friends were the kids with the Mohawks who, well, 
sold some drugs on the beach and things like that. But none of them were engaging in really terrible violence, but they had issues and problems. And I wanted to play with the humor of that and play with the misapprehension of these characters. Your novel helps to show that New York City is a much smaller place than you may think. All your characters are connected in one way, shape, or form. The funny thing is people say... You know, you write about Chicago. How did you move on to a big city like Manhattan? From a square footage point, it's smaller. As a matter of fact, the idea, it's almost more difficult to get a handle on Chicago, which is this sprawling place, whereas New York, everything's condensed. Everybody seems, in my neighborhood, it's like taking an entire neighborhood in Chicago and just kind of squeezing it into one block. Everybody who would be, you know, living two or three miles from each other in Chicago is condensed here, and naturally, there are interconnections. There's overlapping. There are people, there are coincidences that happen as well. And, you know, at, on one level... This matches a lot of my life experience where it's filled with a lot more coincidences than any fiction writer would care to uh, guess. At the same time, though, I wanted to play with this convention of musical theater, of farce, of characters moving on, doors slamming, people moving in and out. So on the one hand, it reflects a little bit of a reality I see. On the other hand, it's a little bit of musical uh, theatrical invention as well. We talked about Caleb. I must say that I laughed out loud when Caleb met his... Love, the woman that he met online. I didn't see that coming. He met another character in the book, and ha-ha. Yeah, I, but they're perfectly matched to each other. I don't want to say who it is, and other than, you know, the film Harold and Maude might be instructive, but I have a lot of different characters meeting up who you wouldn't necessarily expect that they would meet each other, but they seem to be more right for each other than their initial partners anyway. And one of the things I knew when I was writing the book is I knew this was a book about home. I knew the last word of the book was going to be home. And I knew that one way or another, everyone would find their home, their place. And all the characters, through their relationships, through their businesses, everything winds up finding their place. The buyer's husband, Daryl Schiff, eventually finds his home. And it's not with the buyer, Rebecca Sugarman. It's with another woman. No, he's uh, a character who a lot of people find detestable, and he has a lot of detestable elements. He is a very self-involved, immature grad student who basically spends all his time, instead of working on his dissertation, trying to find lewd references in works of Victorian literature and listening to anti-establishment aggressive pop music and hitting on girls in the Columbia Library. But at the same time, Detestable as all these qualities are, and detestable as, well, walking on out on your pregnant wife is, ultimately it turns out much better for her that he does that, as it turns out. But he is a person, everyone here is kind of at a crossroads. Everyone here is at a point where they're moving from who they were to who they are becoming. And a lot of the novel, since it's associated with real estate and moving, it is about this moment in time when you have to decide, are you going to be this person or are you going to change? And Daryl sees this moment, he's way too late, he doesn't know this, but sees this as his last moment for change. He views his life, he sees where he's going, he sees, okay, I can be a grad student writing these papers that I really don't care about, I can be married to a woman I'm not really in love with, and he's always taken the easiest road, and finally, you know, damned to everyone, and a very self-involved narcissistic decision, he decides to change all that. Were you conflicted like that when you were a grad student? I wasn't really a grad student. I, you know, putzed around for an English literature degree. I never really took academia seriously, never, never thought I was really going to do it. 
I just, you know, wanted a master's because other people had them. <laughs> Did you draw on your experiences, though, for Daryl? I drew on papers that I wrote. I mean, a lot of the time I was working as a professional writer and a professional critic, and I went to grad school in English literature just because I didn't know what I was talking about. I Basically, someone would say, oh, go review this play by Eugene O'Neill, and I'd be like, oh, gosh, I better go read a lot of Eugene O'Neill in the next, you know, 72 hours. And it was important to me to get some kind of grounding, but... I, you know, I found myself, unfortunately, underlying what I thought were lewd references in the works of Thackeray and Henry James as opposed to, you know, dealing with thematic elements that I should have been dealing with. So I I was going to say I didn't last too long in grad school, but I lasted a real long time, but never full time and never viewed it as something I would do with my life. There's a line in your book that reads, writing was not an intellectual act, but a sexual one. Do I see writing that way? Mm -hmm. No. I do see writing as a very passionate act, though. As a sexual one, he's pushing it. He's kind of going over the top with that one. And as it turns out, the thing he's writing that he's so passionate and sexualized, this kind of like orgasmic release from his writing, turns out he's writing something terrible. So not so much. But I view writing as a kind of a very joyous thing. I view it as a very energetic and passionate thing. And a lot of people you know, need a dark room and struggle over sentences, when I'm doing it right, which isn't always, but when I when I really feel it, it's something that really just comes out very naturally, and I usually am blasting music while I'm doing it. There's something musical about it, particularly in the writing of this, where I'm kind of obsessed with rhythm and pace of music, and there is a passion to it. Is it sexual? No, not, gosh, I, I don't really think so, but Daryl certainly thinks so, and well, as I said, he turns out to be wrong. I read somewhere that you had thought about naming the book Stranger's Gate after one of the entrances to Central Park. Yeah, I liked that title because of the idea of strangers coming into the apartment. And that's another thing, though, because a lot of people who are real New Yorkers, meaning they've been there longer than I have, say, well, if you're a real New Yorker, you wouldn't use the term Stranger's Gate. No one refers to the gates because those only were put up in 1989. It was Olmsted's idea, but it was never done until the late 80s. And the other problem with Stranger's Gate is there have been two books called Stranger's Gate, one written in the 30s, one that came out last year. And the other problem is it's a really good title for a different book. It's a title for a noir if I ever write like a, you know, a Raymond Chandlery book, Stranger's Gate's a good title for a musical comedy about New York City, not so much. You mentioned earlier how you tried to present even a dog's point of view in this book, and I appreciated that. I appreciated getting inside of Herbie Mann's head, Ike's dog, and hearing what he heard and the way he heard it. That was really a lot of fun. I almost wish I could have written an entire book from his perspective, though I think it might have gotten on everyone's nerves. But I don't know why I do things when I write, but subconsciously it comes out later. But he's a very human character, and I realized I chose Herbie Mann because it's a jazz performer I really like and who Ike, the clarinet player, really likes. But in that name, Herbie Mann, there's the idea of an herb of a man, the like, like kind of the beginning of humanity. And I wanted to explore, since I have this idea of home from so many different perspectives, I wanted to see this idea from a dog's perspective. And there are a lot of great dogs in literature. Virginia Woolf's Flush comes to mind and the dogs in all the Jose Saramago's work where he talks. This is one quote I love in one of his books where he says, what a dog wants most of all is for no one to leave, which, I don't know, it just really, really spoke to me and really spoke to what I see my dog thinking about. And I didn't base any of these characters on actual human beings, but I did base the dog on my dog, trying to figure out how would he spend his first year and a half 
what was coming to a home, because I got him from the shelter on East 110th Street, what was it like to be taken away from his home and put there not knowing what was happening? What was it like to come to a new home? Why did he react the certain ways to different people? Why did he want to go one direction and not another? And it was really kind of a lot of fun and very instructive to try and view it from his perspective and walk around the city trying to see what he would see from his level. And I concentrated a lot of smell on smell when I was writing from his perspective and a lot of what would language sound like, what would he hear, what would... And so I tried to express that on the page too. You put all of the words together. Right, so they're there. They're there as a sound and you can figure it out. If you, But yeah, it's. Uh, I decided to kind of smash it all together and just distinguish speakers by boldface Roman, boldface Roman and try to get it so you could a reader could know what was being said, but also kind of be slightly confused about it as if they were the dog. You also present what home is like for a couple of New York City pigeons who live on an air conditioner in the bedroom window in this apartment. A lot of people tell me, like, the most moving characters in the book are the pigeons. I felt that way, too, especially, and I don't want to give it away, what happens to them in the end. When I started writing, I just wanted to see it from everybody's perspective, as I said. And, you know, when I was moved into my apartment, there were pigeons there. I was wondering what happened to them, but they in some way became a metaphor for, you know, the artists in the city who have to, who are constantly being shunted from one place to the other, kind of having, they have to go from air conditioner to air conditioner, from park to park. But that's a lot of the experience of trying to move in the city where you're constantly being forced out and constantly pushed out. And yeah, I just tried to see what they were seeing and try and envision their life experience too. You're right about pigeon eggs hatching. And I must ask you about this because I have never seen a baby pigeon in New York City. I'm not sure who actually has. Have, have you? Yes. Yeah. Do you know how many pigeons were born on our air conditioner? A ton. During one summer, we left our windows open, and we didn't have any screens in it, and we heard fluttering, and we heard fluttering. We never really paid that much attention. Sometimes we flutter in, flutter out, never when we were in the room. And I came back one night, opened the, turned on the lights, and found that a pigeon had laid an egg on a pair of my pants. Honest. Uh, okay. And I had no idea what to do. We, we put it back on the air conditioner and hoped that it would hatch. I don't think that one actually hatched. I wasn't going to hatch a, you know, pigeon on my jeans. Adam Langer, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks. It's been fun. Adam Langer's Ellington Boulevard is out now from Spiegel and Grau. That's a division of Random House. That's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. Have a great weekend. <laughs> 